Greetings, friends. It's good to be back with you after a short time away. I'm thankful for this to uh, this chance to open the Word of God again to you and and show you some of uh, the King and all of His beauty that we just sang about. The purpose of theology is to teach us about God, right? This is what it is. It's the study of God. It requires reading, writing, thinking, etc. I came in this morning and uh, was greeted by a few people, including Chuck, and he said, uh, we know John's back. Look at the outline. And so uh, there you go. Uh, if, we're gonna, if we're going to study theology, uh, we're going to have to write and read and think. And so if you have a copy of the bulletin, I'd encourage you to open it and follow along, fill in the blanks, and I think this is a, a better way to learn and hopefully an encouragement to your heart and soul. Every year I adjust my plans for my times of private worship. I'm ADD in that way. I've got to change things up. I'm not good at the Bible reading plan year upon year upon year. My wife can do that. I can't. Um, I've done it, but uh, I, I prefer changing things up every year. And so this year, I decided I was going to read the sermons of John Flavel, the Puritan. And so that has been my, the context of my study and my private worship. Um, and I have benefited greatly from this. Uh, rich resource for my soul in every way. And my sermon today really is based on my reflections of his sermons. So happens uh, when expositors teach the scriptures, uh, it's used by other expositors. I don't know if you know this, but you pick your favorite commentator and there's always one before him that said the same things. Um, so, for example, uh, MacArthur's a big fan of Lloyd-Jones. If you read MacArthur and think, oh, what insights, they were Joneses, all right? And on and on it goes with all of our expositors, favorite expositors, uh, which is intended by God. We're told by God that he gave the church, what? Teachers, so that we can grow in our faith and learn about Christ and learn about our Lord and Savior. And so these are all good things. As you know, we're, we're taking a second pass through the last three chapters of the Gospel of Mark, looking specifically for theological nuggets that enhance our understanding of and love for God our Savior. This is what our desire is. And today, if you would, I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 15, and I want you to look at verse 26. This is the next nugget on the docket. Mark 15, 26. We heard Matthew's version of this just a moment ago. Uh, here's Mark's. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Mark said, I mean, Matthew said the inscription read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Mark here, which is his practice, simplifies it and simply says, this is the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. 
It was Roman custom to identify the crime of all those sentenced to death by placing this kind of placard over their head on the cross um, to identify what it is that they were being executed for. And so if you saw an execution by way of crucifixion taking place, you would know by just looking at these placards what they had been convicted of. Murder, robbery, sedition, etc. You come to Jesus and it's king of the Jews. What? So if it's never, if it's never dawned on you before that this is out of order, today it will. There is something here to be learned theologically by considering why this is part of human history. The king of the universe was executed by sinful man and his crime was king of the Jews. So to prepare your minds and hearts for what the Holy Spirit may be saying to us this morning from this particular text, I want you to consider the following three things. And this is just by, by way of introduction. First of all, the description of Christ contained on the placard. The king of the Jews, this very thing, remember, this very thing, just a few moments before had, they had mocked Jesus with, Hail, king of the Jews. They just dressed him up, put a crown of thorns on his head, gave him a reed as a scepter, put an old purple robe on him, and were bowing down in mocking fashion. Hail, king of the Jews. And so God took and turned this into vindication of Jesus' true office and character. He truly was the king. And not just of the Jews. Secondly, the character of Pilate. Pilate directed the writing of the inscription, we read. So, by God's providence, Pilate was not only Jesus' judge, but the announcer of his true identity. Th think about God's overriding providence in this. It's spectacular. The one who condemned Jesus to death was the very one who would declare to the world in three languages the true identity of Jesus. Thirdly, and again, I'm just, I'm just warming up your heart to hear the providence of God in all these matters. And not just the providence of God in these matters, <laughs> the providence of God in our matters. Okay? Thirdly, the timing of the written inscription. It was when Jesus was at his lowest point in his humiliation. It could not get lower. When he was hanging naked, completely naked, before hundreds if not thousands of people, bleeding profusely, he was, after all, after all of his friends had forsaken him, hanging there alone. He was in mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual agony beyond any human ever. No one was left to defend or support him. It was at this time that Pilate attached the inscription identifying Jesus with his crime. King of the Jews. So God overruled the mind and pen of Pilate to vindicate his son Jesus Christ in the strangest of ways. Pilate had no interest in vindicating Jesus, did he? No, he was his enemy. He was interested in ridiculing Jesus. But God oversees all the events of human history in order to accomplish his purposes. And not just in the first century. In all centuries before that and all centuries since that. 
Through God's providence, we see that the glory of Christ Jesus was openly proclaimed by an enemy, and it was done so at the height of his suffering. So I want to unpack this for you a little bit this morning so that you can see the wonder and glory of God's wisdom and power working out the details of these events. Now, I don't want to end our examination, as I just said, on these ancient events themselves. I want to take the truths that we learn here this morning and apply them to our own circumstances, your circumstances, to stir up greater worship of our all-powerful and all-wise God and enhance your joy and confidence as you walk through life, as difficult as it may be, unfair as it may be, as you walk through life with a loving God who is your Savior. So, let's look at the nature and quality of the inscription. The nature and quality of this inscription that we read of. The King of the Jews. First of all, is an extraordinary inscription. Remember that the typical purpose for these inscriptions were to identify the crime of the criminal hanging there, being executed. Rome wrote these inscriptions to justify their cruel method of death penalty, the cross. They deserve this, murderer, thief, king of the Jews. But Jesus' inscription baffles us. Instead of listing a crime, his inscription reveals his true identity. The inscription that Pilate placed over Jesus' head actually vindicated his life and his ministry. This irritated the Jews, the religious leaders at least, and they demanded that Pilate change the inscription to, I claim to be the king of the Jews. You remember that in the Gospel of John? But Pilate refused. Secondly, it wasn't just an extraordinary inscription, it was a public inscription as public as it gets. The inscription was written in three languages, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. So everybody in Jerusalem understood it. Remember, Jerusalem was packed to three times its capacity because this was the Passover. Every Jew around the globe was there. And all these Jews spoke different languages, but they all understood one of those three languages, if not more. Greek was the common worldwide language of the time. Latin was the language of the Roman Empire. And of course, Hebrew was the language of the Jews. Everyone understood what was written. So we can see the providence of God clearly on display in this simple fact, that God ordained this purposefully for the greatest possible broadcast of the primary truth in all creation, Jesus is King. Next, it was an honorable inscription. It was honorable. This providential inscription demonstrated that Christ was in the midst of human history's greatest victory. This seemed like a great defeat, but it, this hanging upon the cross at this time was really the victory dance, is what was going on. And, and by this fact that this was human history's greatest victory even while dying, the humiliation of Christ changed forever the perception of the cross from an instrument of execution and torture to the throne of majesty and strength. This is why the cross pendant that many of you wear remains the most popular of all pendants. It's, it's not just a trinket. 
Some of you may not know this, but it's not just a trinket. It's an emblem of the greatest victory won by the greatest king. That's what you're announcing. You who wear these things, I might get one. It was a vindicating inscription also. I've already referred to this. It brought attention to the true dignity, the innocence of Jesus Christ. It was vindicating. It showed that the accusations of the Jewish leaders were false, in fact, blasphemous even. He is actually the king of the Jews. Whatever they said in that mock trial beforehand was baloney. It says right there, king of the Jews. And they mocked him for hours concerning this. But the inscription stated the true and final judgment of God, the king of the Jews. Next, it was a prophetic inscription. Prophetic. Think about this. The inscription, King of the Jews, foreshadowed his growing kingdom. It was spoken of in three languages. And that prophesied, in a sense, that his name and renown would go into all the world, into every language and every people group, and every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is, in fact, king. We sung it this morning. It said in uh, stanza three, now see the Savior lifted up the Lamb who reigns in splendor. We'll get to that in a minute. But the hope of every tribe, every tongue, his kingdom is forever. This event 2,000 years ago made songs like this possible. It was prophetic. <clears throat> In John chapter 11, verse 51 and 52, the apostle records this, speaking of Caiaphas, the high priest, he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is what was going on on Calvary. Jesus was gathering the nations to himself. He was king. Next, it was a permanent inscription. It was permanent. The Jews couldn't convince Pilate to alter what he had written. John 19 records this debate between the Jewish leaders and uh, Pilate. But Pilate, who was usually a noodle back, as we've learned, refused to budge. What did he say? What I have written, I have written, right? This is the guy who was just a mealy mouth worm and would do anything to get out of pressure. I don't know if worms have mouths, but he did. Anyway, he wouldn't budge. It was a permanent providential inscription that remains today, King of the Jews. All these things that I've listed for you reveal important aspects of God's providence. Now, it doesn't just relate to that event. It moves forward into modern day history. It, it points back to ancient history. It's a permanent providential reality. 
that an enemy of Christ wrote on a little placard and was hanging for a few hours over 2,000 years ago. Now let's take a closer look at the divine providence at work here. I'm going to start building now towards ways that we can apply the providence of God to our own circumstances. In case you're, you think you're in the midst of bad luck, pay close attention. So let's examine the glory of God's providence here. I want you to try to remember what I'm saying now um, so when we get to point three, lights will be coming on, okay? So think about how the providence of God worked in the inscription so you can see it in your life. Next, God's providence under um, second main point and close a closer look at providence at work. God's providence overruled the heart and mind of Pilate. Did Pilate intend to exalt the glory of Jesus? <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, if anything, he was trying to make fun. Pilate was an evil man. He didn't love Jesus. He had no interest in exalting the glory of Christ or his kingship, and yet he did. So God's providence overruled Pilate's mind and pen to write something that he intended in his own heart, but that God used to glorify his son. John Calvin said, the divine providence which overruled the pen of Pilate had far higher views. There's a lot more going on here, Pilate, than you realize. Pilate wrote, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So the providence of God trumped what was in Pilate's heart. Next, God's providence corrected false accusations and the mocking of Jesus that had just taken place. God's providence corrected it. Jesus had been physically, emotionally, and verbally abused. Now the governor of the land assigns king of the Jews to his cross. Whatever the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of or words used to abuse him were in reverse on the inscription. Next, God's providence arranged the circumstances to make this happen so that this weak-kneed Pilate stood his ground when pressured to change the inscription. Not going to do it. All of a sudden, he, he grew a backbone. His determination, that is Pilate's determination, in the face of public pressure was not typical of Pilate. But he remained constant, giving no ground. Pilate... Remember, God is arranging circumstances. Pilate was so angry at the Jewish leaders, he was going to write something that he knew would tick him off. And so he did. And he wasn't going to budge. Next, God's providence turned the tables from a crime that Jesus committed into, or a crime from Jesus, this, this is the table that was turned, this crime that was posted Jesus, King of the Jews, that crime, in fact, moved from Christ to the Jewish leaders who put him there. By divine prompting, Pilate wrote what he did on that placard, and the words written told the story that what had taken place in the previous 24 hours. This is Pilate speaking 
from my own mind, my mind. Not, this is not scripture. This is my mind saying, this is how the providence of God worked through this obstinate Pilate. You have forced me to crucify Jesus, your king, which I have done, but now the shame of his death is yours. He is righteous. The crime is not his, but yours. That's what was said on that placard. He is king. You guys aren't following him, is what the plaque said. This is what made the religious leader so angry. Next, God's providence announced to the world, announced to the world, this little placard that read Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, announced to the world because of the providence of the circumstances present that in fact Jesus was king. All the representatives from around the globe were present in Jerusalem for Passover and Jesus was presented to them, even in his dying moments, as the king of the universe. With so many messengers present to witness this announcement, there was no better way or time to take the news of a suffering, sacrificial king dying for the sins of others into the uttermost parts of the world. We saw it with our own eyes. He's king of the Jews. I was there. Thirdly, now here's where I've asked you to remember these things so that now we can apply them in, with the hopes that the Holy Spirit would grab hold of your heart and use these uh, to bring about greater worship, greater awe and love for your Savior. First of all, the providence of God overrules the plans and actions of sinful people. The providence of God overrules the plans and actions of sinful people, now listen, for his glory and your good. For his exaltation and your joy. God overrules the plans and actions of sinful people in your life that make your life miserable. Human history is filled with examples of rebels against God who have, in spite of all their efforts, done the contrary. To exalt God when they didn't intend to. We've heard that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. Have you heard that? That's a saying. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. What this means is that even though evil people have tried to stamp out Christianity, even to the point of killing Christians... It has resulted in the spread of the gospel and the growth of Christianity. What is that? <laughs> it is the providence of God is what it is. For example, the five missionaries, one of my favorite stories, as you know, the five missionaries who were killed in the jungles of Ecuador, their, their intent was not to exalt the glory of Christ. It was to kill these intruders, right? What happened? 95% of that tribe came to Christ and more of other tribes around that area. So, so in spite of their efforts, God's providence overrules the actions, even murder, of sinful people. Acts 8.4. 4. Now those who were scattered, that's those Christians who were scattered, went about preaching the word. 
Why were they scattered? You know the story. Because of persecution. So they ran. But what did they run with? The gospel. Next, Paul said in Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What had happened to him? Where do you write that from? Philippians. It's a prison epistle. He wrote it from prison. Being imprisoned served to advance the gospel. How so? Well, in many ways in his day, but we're sitting here because Paul wrote a prison epistle in a jail. He wouldn't have been in jail. Do you know where Pilgrim's Progress came from? Besides the Bible, the, the most purchased book in human history. You know where that book came from? Yeah, John Bunyan, right? Of course. John Bunyan. Where did it come from? A prison cell. That's where it came from. See, friends, this view of God's providence ought to encourage your soul, your heart, your faith. When everything seems to be undermining God and his gospel, like the present circumstances in our country, it is actually fulfilling God's purposes to advance his glory and our good, even though we can't see it. So don't despair over lost elections. Don't despair over evil seemingly gaining ground. The truth of the matter is, is that God is orchestrating the events through his providence to exalt his glory and our good, our joy, in fact. You know, we, we, we think it's a horrible thing when someone gets elected that we didn't vote for. It's actually the perfect thing. It's the perfect thing for the glory of God. Next, the providence of God does not provide personal benefit for sinful choices. Now you have to, you're going to have to stay with me here um, to, to grasp what I'm trying to say. Even though God's providence overrules all things, there is no benefit to live in opposition to God's will. In other words, don't try to justify your sinful behavior because God can and does get glory from it. Right? This is what Paul was arguing against in Romans chapter 5 and 6. In Romans 6, 1 and 2, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? He just said that, that grace covers a multitude of sins in the end of chapter 5. And so Paul asked, Now, I know some of you are going to say, Well, we should continue to sin so that we experience more grace. And God is more exalted. And he goes, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, that's not how it works. For example, in our text today, Pilate actually promoted the glory of Christ by writing the king of the Jews. He, he didn't intend to glorify Christ, but he did. And so he gets no credit for that. It's not in the column of pros versus cons on Pilate's lists. No, he will receive no reward. He was used by God, of course, in spite of his rebellious heart, but he gets no credit, no reward. Just because God can and does use the actions of sinful people, it doesn't justify their actions or mean they gain some kind of reward. 
They remain responsible for their sinful actions. Even though killing Christians promotes the gospel, God does not reward murderers, is a simple way to say it. God's rewards are reserved for those who desire to glorify Christ intentionally. There's an important principle here that I want you to see. It's kind of unpacked in 1 Corinthians 9.17. Listen to this. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. Will, reward. If I do this of my own will, there is a reward. That is preaching the gospel in this case. But if not my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. But I'm still required to do it, whether or not I'm doing it joyfully and intentionally. So I want you to see this. As believers, we are called by God to serve and love one another, right? This is a command. This isn't a suggestion in Scripture. We are commanded to serve and love one another. And if we do so joyfully, intentionally, attempting to bring glory to God and joy to others, we do gain reward. But if we serve and love one another begrudgingly out of duty, then we lose reward, even though we've done the right thing. Does that make sense? This is important when you're serving in the nursery, changing diapers, right? And every, every other time in your life. So we need to adjust our attitudes. Whatever we do for Christ, we must do it wholeheartedly, intentionally, willfully, joyfully for his glory. Regularly examine motives, Sun Valley Church, and adjust them so you love and serve others with a pure and God-honoring motive. I've said before, if you can't serve wherever you're serving with joy, then stop serving. Do something else. Next, the providence of God turns shame into honor. The providence of God turns shame into honor. And I think this stands out clearly in Mark 15, 26. God's providence used Pilate's inscription to change the cross from something horribly shameful into something wonderfully glorious. In fact, the, the, in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to his crucifixion as my glory. So Jesus is our suffering king who gave all of himself, even a, even a horrible death, for our redemption and eternal joyful salvation. The cross is the glorious emblem of our faith. When you see a cross, it is the emblem, the emblem of our faith, glorious emblem. When Jesus said to take up your cross and follow me, he knew that those who would, would have difficulty. He knew it wouldn't be an easy path. And yet he said, take up your cross, this horrible thing, and follow me. But if Jesus' cross was turned from shame to honor, what about those who follow him? It's the same. Our crosses that we bear for the cause of Christ, for the glory of God, for the benefit of the church, all turn from what seems shameful, what seems below me, into something wonderful and honoring. So suffering, at whatever level for Christ, whether it's as a result of the sacrifices you make for one another or for dying as a martyr, those things have always been 
a badge of honor in the life of a Christian. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you, granted, this is like a blessing, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. This is the blessing. Not only do you get to believe in Christ, pay attention, you get to suffer for him. We don't hear it like that too often, do we? No. No, it, it's, it's a glorious thing. And, and the cross of Christ made that flip. That's where it came from. And then in Acts 5.41, then that the disciples or the apostles left the presence of the council. This is the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Peter and John were brought in, punished in front of the council, and they left the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Christ. So let me ask you a few questions. Do you get flack for being honest at work? Are you ridiculed because you won't party with the rest of them? Or, or lie to gain an advantage? Or laughed at for holding on to the creation version of all things? Or, or holding on to God's perspective on a social issue? And, and you feel kind of less than, you feel shamed. What are we learning here? It's a glorious thing. You're worthy. You're worthy to suffer for Christ. You're, you're worthy to, to experience these things because it's been granted to you, Christian friend. Next, the providence of God ought to produce God-glorifying Christians. Listen up. If God's providence causes his enemies, like Pilate, to bring him glory, what does his providence produce in the lives of those who love and follow him? If God is going to receive glory from his enemies, what about us? <laughs> What's he going to receive from us? Who say that we love him and follow him and obey him. See, if God's purposes are fulfilled even through his public enemies, aren't his purposes going to be fulfilled in us, his faithful followers? Oh yeah, no doubt. This ought to relieve us from any fear or anxiety that, that tries to steal your joy. God's purposes for us are clearly revealed in Scripture, so, so we can rest assured that despite any loss, any disappointment, any defeat or treatment, we're going to win. We're going to win. We are people who can never be ruined. We're overcomers. We thrive by our losses. We conquer when defeated, and whose enemies actually are God's messengers to bring us good. You can thank those people who dislike you. And then, of course, God's providence will ultimately vindicate us. People may question your motives, Christian friend. But don't give them a reason to question your motives because they're wrong. 
Let them question your motives that are right. Let them question your motives that are designed to bring glory to Jesus Christ. If God's providence vindicated Christ through Pilate's inscription, then sooner or later his providence will vindicate the reputations of all his godly people. At the, so we don't have to worry about it. Let it be. At the moment of his condemnation, what would you say Christ's reputation was? And reputation is public perspective. What do you think Christ's reputation was at the moment of his crucifixion? It was in shambles, wasn't it? But once Pilate providentially placed his inscription on the cross revealing the true identity of the one hanging there, Jesus, his whole reputation began to flip. Jesus didn't try to defend himself in the matter. He didn't shout while hanging from the cross, but it's true. I told you the truth. Why can't you understand? No. It says he kept his mouth silent. He didn't try to defend himself. He trusted God in the midst of his shame. He trusted his father to defend him. How are we at that? We think we have to make things right. We think we have to set the record straight. I mean, how are they going to know unless I say something or write the letter and send it to the editor? Listen to what Jesus did, written by Peter, the one who betrayed him or denied him. When he, speaking of Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, I'm going to get you guys back. You don't realize who I am. No. But he continued, what did he continue doing? Entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. The same one who's still in charge. We can do the same. We can follow Jesus' example here. Psalm 35, Psalm 37, rather, 5 and 6. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. Just trust the Lord. Let him take care of it. There are many biblical characters whose experience support this truth, of course. Joseph was accused by Potiphar's wife. You remember that story. David was accused of treason. Daniel of disobedience. Elijah was accused of troubling Israel. Jeremiah was accused of rebelling. Amos was accused of preaching against the king. The apostles were accused of sedition. Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a false teacher and a false prophet. All of these things were vindicated by God by his loving providence in due time. Some of these people that I just read their names for you never saw it in their lifetime. But no one not even in secular Israel today, are these people derided. They're all vindicated because the providence of God does that for godly people. So we can relax, exercise patience, and continue to faithfully follow Jesus without concern. This morning, we're going to serve you the Lord's Supper and as we do, I want you to think about the providence of God in the death of Christ. 
and how that guarantees, guarantees our good from whatever circumstances we may be in. The suffering of Christ, how unfair was that? And yet his suffering is the reason you're sitting here. Let me read for you a, another stanza from the song we sang earlier, The King in All of His Beauty. And, and by the way, this is referring to the beauty of the cross. The king on the cross and his beauty that was there. If you were there, you wouldn't say this is beautiful. But from here, we can say, oh, how beautiful. We sing about it. <laughs> now see the king who wears a crown. But this crown was made of shame and splinters. Beauty? Oh yeah. The sacrificed, the sacrifice for ruined man, the substitute for sinners. As earth is stained with royal blood and quakes with love and fury, he breathes his last and bows his head, the king in all his beauty. As I prepare to I and the elders prepare to serve you the Lord's Supper. Consider the beauty of Christ. See if it doesn't prompt worship and joy. <clears throat> uh, elders, if you would make your way forward as I read here from the text, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we, we sit here in awe of the beauty of our King, your Son. It's stunning to think of the providence that you possess to orchestrate such detail so that all things bring glory to your son, Jesus Christ. And so that these same things that were so shameful, so unfair, so painful, actually bring the followers of Christ joy as they examine the beauty of their king. And so, Father, Son, King Jesus, and Holy Spirit, we have sat and examined the beauty of our Savior here. Now stir our hearts to further love, deeper commitment, greater joy, and ultimately, passionate worship of our Savior. Lord, we thank you for spilling your blood for shedding your blood for our sin for ruining your physical body that we might be saved from our sin we lift up and glorify your name because of the cross that you endured for us 
Serve us now, Holy Spirit, these things. In the name of our Savior, amen.